This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, an intimate forum for courageous conversation. I'm going to check with Goob because I'm not sure I'm coming through. You're coming through. It's a little bit of weak. Uh, it's just a weak sound. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm boosting some stuff up. All right. We're in a whole new production space tonight, so we're kind of learning. <laughs> uh, tonight is a is the seventh in an ongoing series on food and body image, and we've been focused primarily on eating disorders. But tonight, um, we're going to take a little bit of a of a um, different angle on this and look at how it is to have self-compassion for yourself. I'm going to be talking to the author of Jean Fain, who is a psychotherapist affiliated with Harvard Medical School. She teaches at Cambridge Hospital, and she specializes in everyday eating issues, especially chronic dieting. And Jean is the author of an upcoming book. It's going to be out in January called The Self-Compassion Diet, a step-by-step program to lose weight with loving kindness. Welcome to Safe Space, Jean. Thank you so much. And um, I wish I could hear you a little better. I wonder if your sound people can help out one more smidgen. Okay, we're going to try to do that. He's going to try to bring your level up and mine. Okay. Thank you. Is that better? That is better. Good. I think it's important that we hear each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of at the heart of the whole show, isn't it? I think so. Yes. So um, I want to start by asking you, to tell me a little bit about your story, how you uh, came to self-compassion around food and body image. Well, it was a long journey, um, and one that I never expected would take me decades to get there. Um, it goes all the way back to my late teens, early 20s, when I gained weight um, traveling through Europe. And it was such a miserable experience I was determined to learn how to lose weight and keep it off so I would never feel that miserable again. But I knew nothing about compassion at that age. Indeed. I started where everybody in America usually starts, which is the road most traveled, um, which is dieting. And um, not a very compassionate activity. You know, most diets expect you to deprive yourself, to neglect yourself, to um, self-discipline yourself into action. And so I tried to do that with every diet under the sun, just like my clients say. I tried everything, uh, Atkins, Weight Watchers, fasting. I did draw the line at colon cleansing. But um, nothing worked, at least for very long. I would lose weight, I'd gain it back, and then I would be ready for the next big diet. And I thought, oh, if only I tried harder, if only I worked so much harder, I would lose the weight once and for all. And um, as most listeners probably know, it doesn't quite work that way. So um, the next stop in the journey was exercise, and um, that actually delivered what dieting didn't, which was a healthy, sustainable weight. So I was lucky in learning how to keep the weight off once I lost it pretty early on in the journey. But it wasn't a cure-all, and it wasn't necessarily compassionate. Um, I got all sorts of injuries. This was back in the 80s when the aerobics boom was just booming. So I had shin splints. I had back pain. Um, I, you know, I felt great on the days when I didn't have shin splints, but it wasn't the compassionate thing I was doing to myself. I was doing it to look like the cultural ideal. So long story short, the journey went on and on, and I learned as much as possible about the body until I realized, oh, 
there's a mind attached to the body. There's a head here. And I got curious about the mind and the role that psychology had to play, went back to school, became a psychotherapist, and actually sort of majored in mind-body strategies for health, happiness, and sustainable weight loss. And um, not until, say, two years, no, maybe three years ago, did I discover the... Uh, field of self-compassion, which is actually a field now, and it changed the way that I help my clients lose their weight. It changed the way that I deal with myself around all difficulties. Weight isn't one of them anymore, but, you know, life is full of difficulties. And my conclusions about sustainable weight loss, which have been um, happily colored by the self-compassion research, well, they're all right there in the self-compassion diet. So so let's come back to that. When you said it changed the way that you worked with your clients and with yourself, how did it change it? Well, I stopped giving so much advice, and I started listening more carefully to what they were really saying and trying to feel the pain, some of the pain that they were experiencing because I had forgotten. At this point, it had been, you know, three decades since I had been overweight, and it's easy to get impatient with clients, so most therapists won't tell you that. Um, and I found I had a lot more patience, I could listen, and I could help them discover their own inner wisdom about what they needed to do on their own journeys. If you had both compassion for them and for yourself, it sounds like. Yes, it, it was... Uh, yeah, it was working that way. I mean, it sounds like they were quite connected. As you had compassion for yourself, you found you had more for others. It's true. And I actually practiced cultivating compassion for myself, and I believe that's what allowed me to be more compassionate toward clients and be more effective as a therapist. So when you say that I practiced it, how did you practice it? Well, there are many ways to cultivate self-compassion um, but my all-time favorite is called loving-kindness meditation. It's also known as metta. And um, people are afraid when I say the word meditation. It means sitting on a cushion and um, focusing on your breath for an hour or two. It's not, um, it's not that difficult. It's really simple. So for 10 to 15, 20 minutes a day, I either practiced it formally just sitting in a chair or informally walking around the neighborhood by repeating these four phrases. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be happy. May I live and ease. And you start with I phrases, wishing yourself well, and then you extend these well wishes to your next-door neighbor or the postman or the new mother with a baby carriage. Um, and eventually to the whole world, may we be safe, may we be healthy, may we be happy, may we live in ease. And when you do that, you feel calmer and less reactive and just sort of wiser and happier about your life. It's sort of tapping into your own goodwill for people. Exactly, which is easy to lose when you're stressed out and uh, overscheduled. Yes, like I confess that, you know, there's this wonderful chapter in your book where you, where you lay out some of these practices. Mm -hmm. So in preparing, you know, I tried to be a good student, so I tried them mm -hmm. all. Yeah. And, um, 
And, you know, I've heard of Meta for years. So many friends who meditate and so on, they all want to do Meta and workshops on Meta. Mm-hmm. I find Meta quite difficult. And, you uh, know, it, it, it is um, for many people, and it, it especially is at first. What, what did you find difficult about it? Well, you know, I, and maybe I tried to, you know, start too hard, but I would say I'd try to think of someone I was currently in a struggle with. Oh, and that's would, too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd try to send them, and instead I'd go off into these arguments about how they were so wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you started with the hardest aspect of the exercise. So right. um, eventually, yes, you're supposed to work up to um, extending well wishes toward an enemy, but that is a tall order. And so if you can, you start with yourself. Some people can't do that. That's too much of a stretch for them. And so for those people, I suggest, Begin with someone who's easy to love, like a child or a pet. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And then sort of sneak yourself in. May I be safe. May I be healthy. And when you're ready, and not before then, then you can work up to that person who's really annoying you. Well, I think part of what part of what's wonderful in that chapter is that you really offer six very varied practices. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't, I think the, the difficulty with Meta was not so much for me around being able to access goodwill for others and in fact mm-hmm. that's that's not that hard mm-hmm. but it didn't it didn't feel like that much of a shift but i think when you there's another one that you describe where you talk about accessing a compassionate advisor yeah. where you go inside and you picture maybe a grandfather a parent who loved you or mm-hmm. s- maybe even a part of nature it just could be anything yeah. that you imagine sort of sees you through the eyes of love Mm-hmm. And you bring something that you're struggling with to that person. Now that I experience is incredibly powerful and very moving. And what's so great is that you gravitated to the one you liked better or best. And you don't have to do all six. That's the good news. Yes. <laughs> you can find the one or two that you like best and you can not touch the other ones until maybe later or, or maybe never. Yes. You don't have to do every exercise in the book. That's right. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking to Jean Fain about the self-compassion diet. And part of what's intriguing about your book is that, in fact, there's no diet in it. You know, it's mm-hmm. called a diet, but it's actually a non-diet diet book, as I understand it. And, yes. And what I get from your story is that diets don't work. In fact, diets usually lead to weight gain over time. That's my experience. Too. Yes, and I think as as one of my guests said to me earlier, the problem is the cure. So the cure for weight, for weight gain or for being overweight, yes. the cure is the problem itself. It is true. Dieting sets you up to undereat and eventually overeat. You know, you get so hungry and you get so cranky that food looks much, much better and it looks like the solution. And so people turn to cookies and crackers and cake and whatever to calm them down once they get so cranky on dieting. Right. And they start to feel really entitled to eat, too, because they've been so deprived. Yes, I deserve this. Yes. So, you know, you say in your in your writing that you often work with chronic dieters. Mm-hmm. And what I was struck by is so many people that I've interviewed about eating disorders talk about dieting as a a form of self-hatred or hatred of the body or judging the body as bad. And if you're working with someone who comes from that, who's been a chronic dieter, Uh how do you help them 
you know, do practices like self-compassion or some of the others in your book without it being yet another kind of kinder, gentler form of self-hate? Yes. Um, you know, it's not always obvious. Um, it comes out of the relationship how to help each person get to a more compassionate place. So there's no sort of one-size-fits-all solution to um, enhancing compassion. However, um, just by listening compassionately and looking compassionately at the client, well, it is contagious, so that's one way that it happens. Um, Another way is that, um, uh, let's see, I teach them, well, before I teach them the practices or even one practice, I ask them about how their method is working. I ask them, and they usually talk about self-discipline, I ask them to notice how it's working, and if it isn't working, if it is backfiring, I invite them to get curious about something completely different, self-compassion. And at that point, because they're so frustrated with failure, um, they're a little more open um, I don't teach them necessarily how to think more kindly of themselves, and I don't tell them what to think or how to feel. My job is to help them notice how they think and feel. And if they're being really mean and nasty to themselves by calling themselves, you know, I'm disgusting, I'm a fat pig, I hate myself or whatever, um, to notice that with as much self-compassion and as little self-criticism as they can, to just scientifically observe they're giving themselves a steady diet of um, nasty thoughts. And once they can notice that, um, setting aside all that judgment, funny thing happens. They start um, treating themselves with more compassion. They start taking better care of themselves and... Little by little, they stop depriving and neglecting themselves. So that's one way that I get through to them. Yes, I mean, it's sort of paradoxical, isn't it? Because in our culture, we believe in self-discipline. I mean, American culture is about picking yourself up by your bootstraps, right? That's what we always say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about AA, for instance, or 12 Steps, which are which are about you know really surrendering the will, letting go mm-hmm. of the fantasy that willpower is the answer. Yeah, which it sounds like is is very similar, and yet there is a great deal of cultural resistance to that idea. Um, we we believe in self discipline. How do you? I mean, it sounds like your way through that is to help people really evaluate. Yeah, but is that actually working? Yes. So I don't tell them don't stop dieting or don't stop trying to make self-discipline work. Just pay attention. You know, what happens when you do diet? What happens when you force yourself to eat puny portions of frozen, tasteless entrees? What happens when you're so exhausted but you force yourself to exercise anyway? And um, on a good day, they do begin to notice, oh, this is this food really is tasteless or oh i'm so tired i think a nap might be more compassionate or a better idea than um going to the gym and forcing myself to do the elliptical trainer one of the things that i was really struck by was a study that you cite that was done in wake forest where mm-hmm. a group of people were dieters were encouraged to eat a donut and then half the group was told to think sort of compassionate thoughts toward themselves, mm-hmm. and the other thought the other group wasn't, 
And then they were each given some candy, and, and what they found out was that the people who'd been given compassionate messages to themselves ate far less candy than yeah. the group that only ate the donut and weren't told anything like that. And I'm glad you mentioned that study, because that study was one of the reasons I started um, getting excited about self-compassion. There was proof that if you thought kinder thoughts about your, you know, falling off the diet wagon, having a donut, that you would actually not, like, uh, overindulge for days on end like most dieters do. They just got right back on track and didn't, you know, have a big problem. But those who were left alone with their self-criticism, you know, they eat a lot of candy. It's so striking. I mean, what you're saying is that self-criticism and negative feelings are what fuel overeating. That's one of the things, yes, definitely. Because it, it, I think, you know, along with this idea of self-discipline is the belief in punishment, mm. that punishing is what makes us good. Yes, dieters, many dieters do sort of believe that. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I think our, I think our child-rearing practices, mm. <laughs> you know, we, we punish a child to, so that they won't do it again, so they'll become better. To motivate them to be good. Yes, yes I mean, dieters come by this honestly. Yes. But then, you know, what that study suggested is that, yeah, so they punished themselves verbally inside, mentally, mm-hmm, exactly. and then they ate more candy. Mm-hmm. So that, and so it backfires, and yet people don't want to believe that. They want to believe in the instant cure of the perfect diet, the celebrity diet, the crash diet, and they're not ready to let go of that. So many Americans, it's kind of sad. It is sad. It's mm-hmm. a huge thing to, to try to really see that differently. A moment ago when I said self-criticism and negative feelings are part of what fuel a reading, you said that's one of the things. What are, mm-hmm. what are some of the other things? Well, I think the biggest one is hunger. So most dieters are starving. And if you tell them, you know, your problem isn't overeating, it's undereating, they'll look at you cross-eyed like you're absolutely crazy. But then I ask them to keep a log of everything they've eaten over the course of a week or two. And it's pretty clear that some part of the day or for many days on end, they're not getting enough nourishment. Then they are starving. And when we're starving, we get impulsive and we're not that bright. (laughs) And we reach for the highest. I mean, we are bright in a way because we reach for the highest calorie food in sight. And if there were a bison, we would eat that. Um, so that we will survive. Um, so hunger really is the number one reason I think most people can't stick to their diets or, you know, lose weight and keep it off. I think that emotional overeating, the, this discomfort from self-criticism, that's number two or number three, but hunger is definitely number one. It's it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Isn't people, it? Yes. Yeah, it's, very, yeah. it's powerful to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um so when you are working with someone and you're inviting them to notice about whether it works or not and they begin to see that their self-discipline strategy really is backfiring, mm-hmm. um, how? what's the next step? How do you connect the invitation to have self-compassion with weight loss? How does that work? Well, it runs throughout the whole treatment, whether it's a short treatment or long treatment. So if they're starving, I don't say, wouldn't it be more compassionate if you ate a larger lunch? I just say, have you considered eating more for lunch? You know, that's kind of a puny lunch or you're not even eating lunch. 
it's implied in the question. I don't necessarily hit them over the head every minute of the session. You need to be more self-compassionate. But my questions are inherently more compassionate than their the answers or assumptions they've got in their head about how they're supposed to lose weight. Yes, and you define compassion in three ways, or three ways that I could tell, which was mindful awareness, self-kindness, and a sense of common humanity. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit about each one of those. Sure, no problem. So um, this definition you're quoting is from Kristen Neff, who is um, one of the leading self-compassion researchers in the country, so I want to give her credit. Um, Mindful awareness, the first component, is just paying attention right here, right now, with as little self-criticism and as much self-acceptance as you can muster. So rather than regretting how much you ate yesterday, and by you I mean all dieters or all over anyone who overate yesterday, yes. or rather than promising yourself to start dieting tomorrow being really, really good, it's accepting yourself just as you are, however much you weigh. So that's mindful awareness. Loving kindness is exactly what it sounds like, treating yourself with love and kindness like a mom would treat her new baby. So if the baby's hungry, um, you don't deprive the baby of baby food. You feed the baby. Or if the baby's tired, you don't say, you know, crawl around the living room for 30 minutes and then you can take a nap. You put the baby down for a nap. So loving kindness is treating yourself like a beloved child. And the third component, common humanity, is recognizing that you're not alone. You have a lot of company if you're overweight or unhappy with your weight. Millions and millions of people wake up every morning the same way. Ugh, I'm so unhappy about my weight. I wish I could lose a few pounds. So common humanity means you are definitely not alone and you don't have to go it alone. And how do you help people realize that, that they're not alone? Because shame, you know, this being overweight is so shamed in our culture, and we yeah. hide, we generally hide when we feel ashamed. So mm-hmm. how do you help people begin to notice that, or to feel connected to a larger humanity? Well, in individual therapy, they begin by connecting with me, the therapist. So they really aren't alone. They have someone to talk to. Um that's step one. Most uh, uh, some um, dieters, some people who are overweight, um, will gravitate to a weight loss group, but many of them want nothing to do with them. Um, so they need to work up to getting more support in their life, not just in the fifty-minute um, therapy hour, but finding some way to have support, positive support from either their friends or some neighbors who they can, you know, cook soup with together, or actually going to a more traditional um, weight loss group. Um, it's something they have to work up to. So uh, there's, just like all of this, there's no one way to um, feel less alone. Um, people have to find a way to open themselves up to getting support when they're ready in their own way. So I want to talk a little bit more about that, about sort of the fact forces that might keep someone from being in a group or connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. 
You know, one person that I've worked with described an internal merit system. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a man actually saying that he he didn't deserve compassion unless he had earned it. Mm. And there was such a feeling of sort of success and failure as tied into uh, whether he could be kind to himself. And I wondered if you could, do you see a lot of that and how the sort of sense of failure can make people not believe they deserve compassion even when they need it the most? Yes. Um, there is a real point system that people have in their head. And in fact, there are real point systems, <laughs> like with Weight Watchers or other sort of c- calorie counting systems. Um, and if they don't um, have the right balance of positive points, enough success, then they are disgusted with themselves. They think they're failures, and they don't feel like they deserve love. Um, and so I have to listen to that. And I can't just say, well, don't be disgusted with yourself, and of course you deserve love. Um, right. I asked them, you know, is that how you would treat some a friend or a relative who didn't, you know, eat, uh, if they ate too many points at Weight Watchers? Would you be this um, critical of that person? Sometimes that helps them see how critical they're being with themselves. Um Again, there's no one way to help them, you know, stop being disgusted with themselves and start loving themselves. But over time in the relationship, it begins to um, happen. I remember a teacher once telling me that if we were sitting at a restaurant mm-hmm. and overheard a parent talking to a child at the table next door, yes. and the parent was talking to that child the same way that we talk to ourselves, mm-hmm. that we would probably be so sickened we would have to leave the restaurant and be unable to eat. Yeah. And I found that, and that seems to be exactly what you're doing. Like you're helping people externalize the conversation and sort of listen to it. That is if, nicely put, Anne. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. I mean, it's such a wonderful tool. It's so, but it's so illuminating. Like, oh my gosh, I would never talk to someone I cared about that way. Exactly. Yes. Suddenly we hear ourselves for the first time. So, Jean, we're, we're only time for really one more question, and I want to ask you about whether it works, because I think that some people hear about, oh my gosh, self-compassion, I have to lose weight. If I have compassion for myself, I'm just going to indulge. Exactly. So I'd love to hear your answer to that and to talk a little bit about whether this is effective. Well, um, I've seen it with my own eyes, with my clients, um, but, you know, you can't see them, you radio listeners out there. So for you, there's um, science that supports exactly what I'm saying. So the one study that you mentioned where the overweight subjects, um, or the, they were rigid dieters, they were forced to eat a donut and then think kindly of themselves, at least half of the group were. Those people didn't indulge in emotional eating, but those who were left alone with their self-criticism, they did. So that's one persuasive study. But, you know, people want to hear about weight loss, and we have studies for that as well. So... Um, Subjects who learned mindful awareness, they, um, which is a component of self-compassion, yes, they lost weight and they kept it off. And if they had binge eating disorder, they binge significantly less just by practicing mindful awareness. And there so, are other studies too. I don't know. I think we're running out of time here. We are. Uh, so, I, so, and to find them, why don't you um, give people what your website address is, Jean, so people can find out more about this? Sure. 
Uh, it's www.jeanfain.com. That's one place to learn more and about... spell that out. Spell out your name. Okay, sure. J-E-A-N-F-A-I-N, that's all one word, dot com. Great. So they can go there, or they can go directly to Amazon.com and find the Self-Compassion Diet, which is already available on pre-order at this very minute. How exciting. It's yeah. wonderful. Well, I mean, because what you're describing, what I'm hearing from it, it is not only effective in producing sustainable weight loss, but it's such a more enjoyable way to go. Yes. Not not just with the eating, but in life, yes. You could enjoy your life a little more with some self-compassion, all of us. Jean, thank you so much for being my guest. I'm ex- really excited and delighted to hear about your work. Thank you, Anne. This is Dr. Anne at Safe Space. And if you want to get a transcript of this show, not a transcript, if you want to hear it again or forward it to a friend, please go to the website for the show, which is www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe to get a weekly notice about the show. You can also get automatic downloads from iTunes. Um, next week, I'll be talking to Margaret Bullitt-Jonas about food addiction and spiritual hunger. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.